Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast, I'm James. Hey, everyone. It is the 4th of June and this is episode 112. We have a loaded show for you guys coming up. This is a big one. So we're going to start off with another interview that I got when I was at the Freeman Conference a few weeks ago with Grover Norquist, head of Americans for Tax Reform. This guy is a big player. Mm. Uh, if anyone's seen the movie Vice, he is listed as one of the enemies of uh, the people in that movie. Really? I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So we talk about that with him. He uh, Basically, if you've heard of these like famous Wednesday meetings over in the US or the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, this is the guy that made all of it uh, possible and created it all. Big fish. So we're going to be talking to him about his life and tax reform in general, uh, what it's like being uh, a bad guy in Vice, mm-hmm. and why he goes to Burning Man every single year. Does um, he? He does. That's another thing I didn't know. I can't yeah. wait to listen to this interview. Well, yeah, <laughs> which you know, you would think by now Peter would have listened to the interviews, but he's not. He's a man that enjoys living life on the edge. No, I'll take him fresh. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and we're also going to be talking to Daily Telegraph columnist Miranda Devine. Now she had a great article basically she was with the morrison camp for the final day no just after the election she interviewed so many people that were involved in morrison's campaign and gets a whole lot of behind the scenes stories about what the last few days were like why scott morrison was convinced basically from the outset of the campaign that he was going to win despite every poll showing that uh he wasn't he had other polls that said he would so we talk about that also touch on Israel Folau and what Labor's response has been to losing the election, which I think transitions nicely into what we want to start talking about, which is Bill Shorten doesn't quite get it, Pete. Well, he doesn't. No. So basically, Bill, you know, it's a tough loss. It's a tough loss. People are going to process a loss like that in different ways. Doesn't quite get it. So Bill uh, is quoted here in the ABC. He's saying uh, about what Labor was up against. And instead of looking at uh, maybe his own tax policies, uh, maybe the reliance on climate policies, uh, we've got here. But obviously we were up against corporate leviathans, a financial behemoth, spending unprecedented hundreds of millions of dollars on advertising, telling lies and spreading fear. Uh, And he also took aim at the media in general. So Pete... uh, Corporate Leviathans or Financial Behemoth or both? What do you think was behind Labor's loss? Well, they're pretty similar, though, both of those things. Um, oh, no, no, no. One's a corporate and a, what is it? A Leviathan, which I believe is a fish creature in Greek mythology. Don't and know. then a Financial Behemoth, which I think is more of a land thing. My knowledge coming from Age of Mythology. Well, Great game for those who still have PCs. I don't know what any of that stuff is, but that's good that you're across that. Look, I think that, you know, as Gideon Rosner said on Twitter... Yeah, I think Bill's very unlucky. He only had the ABC. He only had the union movement. He only had Get Up. He only had the universities. He only had you know the unions and everything. Else. How could anyone expect him to win? With How was he meant such to... few foot soldiers in his army? Exactly right. He only had the education system, which is you know churning out left wing people yep. every single day, <laughs> oh, once a year. But you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So yeah, and they actually had more corporate donations apparently. The Labor Party. Okay, very good point, Pete. Now, we did have to pause the show because there was a passing ambulance. So, mm-hmm. in that time, I have shown Pete the difference between a behemoth and a leviathan. So, mm-hmm. Pete, if you had to choose between a corporate leviathan and a financial behemoth to be on your side, you're going to be up against someone who's got the other. What would you pick? The, the second. The leviathan, the behemoth? Yeah. yeah. Just keep it on land. Yeah, you're a land creature. Yeah. What's, what's, <laughs> what's what levi- is the leviathan if it's in the sea? Well, Canberra is a swamp, so maybe we can get the leviathan and into I that swamp area. Never then, go there. No, okay, fair enough. Uh, cool. So, yeah, interesting one for Labor because Anthony Albanese has sort of said, okay, we need to re- t- uh, reconnect with people. And Joel Fitzgibbon was on Q&A last night talking about mm-hmm. how, uh, you know, they need to 
broadcast the fact that they're not anti-coal a bit more, but then you've got Bill Shorten saying, actually, the the problem was not with us, it was with everyone else and the fact that they were against us. I think that's a good point. Albanese is making the right sounds about reconnecting with ordinary people, as we sort of mentioned last week. And I'm sure you talk about this with Miranda Devine. Yes. He did say in the party room... Um, we're still the party of change, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see what he actually does. Yeah. I think the point with Shorten, though, is we can get complacent on our side of politics because we win so many elections. Like, the coalition's won seven out of ten elections or whatever. Yeah. And over the I course... I object to we, but okay. Oh, not we, but <laughs> okay, this, yeah. you know, the liber- liberal centre-right coalition, yeah, yeah, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So, and they've won, what, 32 out of 46 elections over the whole course of Australia or whatever. Mm. Yet it still, and John Roskam says this, it still feels like Labor runs the country. Yeah, exactly. So there's more Labors in society apart from, you know, parliamentary politics and the left controls all the other ones. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh, my main point is this is a tough look for the ABC and Fairfax papers because if Bill Shorten says that the media is out to get him, mm. that means they're just, they don't get watched by the most powerful left-wing figure in the country. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. I mean, that's bad news for them. Like, news if for he them. thought the media was out to get him, that means he's never turned on ABC once in his life. You would have thought a billion dollars funding a year would get you Bill Shorten occasionally to have a look at what you're putting on, but apparently not. Apparently not, which is a tough look for them. Uh, speaking of elections, Pete, a pretty interesting poll came out in the UK. Well, that's right. So we've also, we all knew that the, uh, the European elections happened recently in Britain where the Brexit Party uh, got the most seats. They've done a poll recently uh, in the last couple of days of uh, British people about who they would vote for if there was a West, Westminster election happening right away, so a general election. And for the first time, the Brexit Party has actually hit the top of the Westminster polls. Uh, it suggests that hundreds of peop- 100 Conservative Party seats are at risk um, as well as Labor seats. The Lib Dems have also made big increases. I'll give you a few actual percentages. So Brexit's on 26%, Labor 22%, the Conservatives 17% in the third. Lib Democrats up to 16% and then, and then uh, the Greens on the also Reigns, yes. And then Change UK making a huge impact on 1%. Um, so Nigel Farage for PM. Yeah, uh, that seems to be it. So basically breaking that down uh, through seats... It would leave Farage 20 seats short of a majority. Really? Which is pretty crazy. Uh, With 306 MPs, the Conservatives would be reduced to 26 MPs (laughs) in total, suggesting they could be a minor party in a coalition with Farage. So Prime Minister Farage, minor party, uh, Conservatives. Now, that would get Brexit done. That would get... Well, it might be the other way to do it. Uh, The other parts, uh, the other statistics from these polls I like. So Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, continue to have incredibly low ratings on the question of who would make best Prime Minister. Mm. Both are only on 15% with 60% undecided. So that is huge. Yeah. That, well, I would love people. 15% of people to think I'd be good at my job. But uh, apparently uh, this is a bad thing for Theresa May to have over her. Well, you know, this is why she's fallen on her sword. Yeah. I, I would point out the next election isn't due till 5th of May 2020. And there will be a new... Yeah, and there will be a new Prime Minister in that time. Yeah. Uh, so it does look like it's going to be Boris Johnson. And this is the biggest indicator I've ever seen that, like, yeah, you might need to do a no-deal Brexit because that is what your base wants. It's almost like that's what they want. Imagine, like, you know, after the election, there are only 26 Conservative MPs. That, that would be incredible. so wide. Do you know... what's that? Where's that fit with there? We probably don't know where that fits in with there. Worst ever historical I mean, record. that'd be pretty damn bad. I mean, like, the European elections had just passed was their lowest vote share in a national election mm. since they formed in 1834, uh, which is not good. I did some further research and found out that is a not good <laughs> okay, result. Okay, well, that's good. good to see um, you down the extra mile. Yeah, good. yeah. So I would imagine that uh, 26 seats would, if that's not the lowest, I would be absolutely shocked. And let's not forget in the House of Commons, there's about 4 million seats. It's yeah, not exactly. Like Australia. There's yeah. thousands of them. Which uh, is 
should be a good thing, but that is a discussion for another day. It is. Uh, now, uh, there is also another story here, Pete. Yep. And I forgot which one it was, so help me out here. I think you're doing whistleblower. Oh, yeah. So, all right. Let me, let me posit this to you, Pete. <laughs> what should we as a society give to someone who finds out uh, that the ATO staff are being instructed to use aggressive debt collection practice known as uh, garnishing notices, which basically allows the ATO to seize funds from the bank accounts of Australian taxpayers without notice or consideration of circumstances. Uh, and they are basically categorically instructed to take money out of people's bank accounts when due process hasn't been followed. Now, what, as we as a society, should we give to the person that uh, found that out? Well, probably less than someone that murders someone. Yeah, I'd because apparently we're giving him 161 years in jail. Oh, okay. Like, that's what he's up for. That so great. This story broke. Uh, it's come out amidst, uh, you know, the, ba- the makeup of the Senate. There's one key crossbencher who's really brought this case forward. Is like, we should let this guy go. Yeah. So his name is Richard Boyle. Uh, he's facing 100, more than 160 years in prison if convicted of breaching laws on handling public documents and recording phone calls when he spoke out on the ATO mistreatment Mm -hmm. now there's a lot of famous examples around the world of this like Julian Assange and uh, stuff like that this is the biggest one that Australia's had uh, because you know Julian Assange is an Australian despite how much the left wing would love him to be Australian or would have loved him for a time Uh, but yeah this is crazy oh look absolutely the fact that this can happen to someone who's preventing Australians money from being taken from them by the tax office in a pretty dodgy way is Incredible. I understand there's state, sec- state secrets and things like that, but this is a huge thing. The person you were talking about from the Centre Alliance Party, Senator Rex Patrick, is a big supporter. He pointed out that the ATO's internal inquiries following this guy's whistleblowing found out that they were doing wrong things. They had two inquiries. They both found out he was doing the wrong thing. Sorry. the fact he's facing they... a jail term of 161 years. Yeah. So, hey, really good work finding out all of the things that we're doing wrong. We're mm-hmm. going to stop doing those things wrong. But you're going to jail for 160 years. It is just such it's such a bad message. To yeah. Send so hopefully this guy gets off. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on it. So you know, watch this space, I guess. And he did say he did point out the human cost on on what's actually occurred to him. He's you know had some pretty dark moments and it's taken a huge toll yeah. On his 160 and years hanging over my head would be something. That's right. Yeah. They wouldn't. That's be a right. long time, Pete. It is. <laughs> it is a long time. So yeah. it took me a while for me to register what you were saying there. But yes, <laughs> that is a long time. <laughs> All right. Okay, let's move on to the next one. So three days before the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, Twitter suspended the accounts of dissident Chinese political commentators. Now, at first it was like, why is Twitter doing the job of the Chinese government? Because actually you can't access Twitter on in China unless you have a cool workaround, which a lot of these dissidents do. Uh, but then it, it emerged that it was in fact an accident. This hit more than 100 users, including human rights lawyers, activists and college students. Oh, it was an accident? Yeah, it was an accident. Oh, right, yep. <laughs> oh, so you're no, I'm just saying it was an accident. <laughs> it was a complete accident that all these accounts got suspended. So you, you're sceptical. That's what you're. That's what this is. Um, well, don't give me legal trouble, Pete. I'm just pointing out that it's. Uh, I just want to mention again that it was an accident. All right. Well, fair enough. But Twitter said these accounts were not mass reported by the Chinese authorities. This was routine action on our part. Uh, the Chinese government actually have what's called the Internet Police, which track down people that are on Twitter and make them delete their you know, profiles and delete all the tweets they've ever made and I'm sure other stuff as well. But um, that's so that's how chilling that is. Now, look, I'm, people sort of said, you know, this is a terrible thing and they're surprised by it. Look, t- Twitter is an authoritarian left-wing 
organization who's surprised that they would act like the chinese government yeah exactly like they've been shutting down people for tweeting learn to code yeah like, <laughs> this isn't a two step too far removed the chinese government wouldn't stand for that all right uh over at ipa.org.au head over there to keep up with what the ipa is doing and it's basically been structured around two main things this week so we've got a new parliamentary research brief and economic policy agenda for mainstream australia this is uh basically a document that daniel wilde and andrew bushnell put together to talk about uh what the future of the economy should be in Australia. Like, what are the key things that make up a mainstream Australia? What are the key values? And how can we build an economics agenda to encourage those values? And uh, also with a lot of minimum wage stuff this week. So you had Gideon Rosner talking about minimum wage and all the harms that it can do to society's most vulnerable. And then finally, you've got John Lloyd in uh, The Australian talking about how the public service is so disassociated from mainstream Australian values because basically everywhere in the country voted... Liberal, except for Canberra, which was overwhelmingly Labor. So that disconnect and what that can mean for Australian society as a whole. Made a big splash that way. It did. Uh, not Didn't go down too well in Canberra. Uh, so that's it. Make sure you're also listening and downloading the IPA's Looking Forward podcast with Chris, Dr. Chris Berg and Scott Hargraves. Uh, they've got a really cool show for you guys coming up tomorrow. So, yeah, if you do like your analytical political fix, make sure you're downloading that one as well as this one. And if you are listening to both of those podcasts through iTunes, uh, make sure you're leaving us a five-star rating. really helps us out with the show. really helps us bring uh, the podcast to new people. All right, cool. Let's go to those interviews now. Okay, we are now joined by Grover Norquist, the founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform. So we're coming to you live from the ALS Freedman Conference. So thanks again for Tim Andrews and all the people involved uh, letting us hear. So uh, Grover, you're famous for a lot of things. You've got the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, the Wednesday meeting. So why have you devoted your professional career to cutting taxes? I think cutting taxes is where the, the rubber hits the road on the size of the state, the power of the state, and the relationship between citizens and the state. Um, if taxes are unlimited, then the power of the state over the individual is unlimited. If taxes are limited and controlled, then the power of the government over people is limited and controlled. So that's that's why that's the zone to fight in. Yeah. Uh, I would say Trump's tax cuts recently are a huge victory for you and yes. the sort of tax cut uh, program as a whole. So what was your take on that and what's the effect on the American economy been? Sure. Uh, the Trump tax cut was extremely helpful. We cut the corporate rate from 35%, which oddly enough was the worst in the world, higher than communist China, higher than Germany, higher than France, higher than Sweden, higher than everybody, down to 21, which made us competitive with the rest of the world. Not really good, but okay. Um, but it was a big swing for the United States. We took individual rates for every American down. We took uh, small business rates down. And uh, we ended the tax subsidy for local government taxes by not allowing you to deduct most of your state and local taxes. So you feel your state and local taxes completely. There's no discount. Um, this has led to strong economic growth, millions of jobs, 3% uh, growth, whereas for the previous eight years, we averaged about 1.8%. Uh, so you saw within immediately, within the first year, a dramatic increase, almost a doubling, of the rate of growth in the United States. Uh, and so this tremendously strengthens the modern Republican Party. Trump's own personal numbers have greatly strengthened. People's view of the economy is greatly strengthened. The number of small businesses has jumped up. Uh, it's been very important. Yeah, and it's so fascinating to me that it's like a 35 to a 21% drop-off, which uh, is so out of what Australia is talking about. Like, we're having these 
debates about corporate tax reform, which are just like fiddling around the margins. There's so much Australia could learn from the Americans on this. So what are some of the lessons that we should be taking? Well, I think uh, dramatic reductions in the corporate rate give you growth that swamps any lost revenue from the lower rate. Second, look, the whole world is moving to lower rates. The United States was um, late to the game of taking the corporate rate down. When we were at 35% with Reagan's Tax Reform Act of 1986, we went down to 35 from 50. Um, what, what was that all about? Well, that made us one of the lowest in the world then. The whole world saw how well it did for the United States, so they all went lower than 35. And we sat around for 30 years not moving. So we jumped to 21, and uh, Trump and the Republicans have made it very clear they want to get to 15% next time we, we have an at-bat. Yeah, do you reckon that's a viable option? Yeah, I think it's very likely. If we get a Republican House, we'll get to 15, 15%. That's fantastic. So there's so many good stories that get told once tax cuts happen. Like you, you were just talking about the jobs and like more, there's more money in people's pockets. Yet the idea of uh, I'm going to cut your taxes isn't the most, uh, you know, it, it's not the best way for a politician to go away with in the modern day. So why are tax cuts so hard to argue for? Well, the, the establishment press um, generally takes dictation from government press releases. Uh, and so they always look at things from the government's perspective. That's why the press, the media, talks about a tax cut as costing money, meaning it costs the government. Now, taxes cost citizens, but they refer that as raising revenue. So you can tell the way the establishment press talks. They're standing in the shoes of the government, not in the shoes of citizens and taxpayers. Uh, and so they tend to belittle the idea of reducing taxes because it's their friends that get the government money, uh, and they don't want to reduce that. Uh, the good news is, though, when people are asked whether they want higher taxes or lower taxes, people want lower taxes. Do they think they're too high taxed or not taxed enough? Overwhelmingly, in the United States, people think taxes are too high. About 1% to 2% of people think taxes should be higher. Everybody else thinks they should be the same or lower. Uh, so it is a very winning political issue once you pull the trigger. Yeah. I, it's the weirdest thing to me is like when people say like it's increasing revenue. It's like the idea that all money is government owned. It's just whatever scraps they leave people to have by themselves rather than all money is people owned. It's whatever they give to the government. Yes. The, the idea that the government is giving money to somebody if it cuts your taxes is the argument that when a mugger passes you on the street unmolested, he gave you your wallet. Fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's such an interesting topic, but uh, it like and as well as not in get exactly getting into the public about it, it certainly doesn't get to young people enough. Like young people don't really vote thinking about taxes. They think they vote thinking about all these other issues like social issues. Uh, so why do young people especially need to care about taxes? Well, because it's their future. If you don't start saving now, um, when you get to retirement age, you won't have the money you need. If you're taxed and regulated out of a job for five years and you don't really get going until you're in mid-twenties. Um, you just don't have as much money when you retire. You can't earn as much over your lifetime. It's very important to people to get into the marketplace early uh, and start earning and learning. The other side of the Trump experience at the moment for America are the trade wars. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of talk about tariffs and what tariffs will be put in and what tariffs will be taken out. Uh, what, what's your take on all of that? Tariffs are taxes. Tariffs are taxes. Tariffs are taxes. American tariffs on goods from China are a tax increase on the American consumer, the American citizen. Chinese people do not pay the uh, 
tariffs on goods imported to the United States. Americans pay that. Now, the President has said his goal is to use tariffs as a weapon to get the Chinese to reduce their non-tariff barriers, their tariff barriers, and their theft of American intellectual property. He's quite right that we need to readjust our agreements with China because they're cheating. Um, on the other hand, we didn't really fully ever make the Japanese reform their behavior, and we benefited from lower-priced goods from Japan, and eventually the Japanese had all this malinvestment from government spending, and they had a, week, a, a decade, almost two decades, of very little growth. China's about to hit the same wall, um, so I'm less concerned about China the next oh, 30 years, 250 million more Chinese will be over the age of 55 and not under the age of 55. So you're talking about an incredible ch uh, slice of the workforce is going to be into retirement and it disappears because China is not having as many children, they're not replacing themselves. Um, I was never f scared of the Japanese and I'm less scared of China as a competitor to the United States or to the West because um, at the end of the day, we are getting through. I mean, they've moved so far from Maoist communism um, that the distance to, to turn into Sweden or France <laughs> is a lot less of a distance than the distance they've traveled. Yeah. I mean, that's the way, because everyone sort of pits it as Trump v. China or America v. China, but it's really like you end up being a, such a tax on the American people, like the spending power is taken away. Yeah. I, I do think that at the end of the day, because the farmers, because the Republican congressmen and senators have told Trump, knock off the trade war, fix, finish the trade war, finish the trade war, um, they got Trump to get rid of the tariffs on steel and aluminum on uh, Mexico and Canada in order to pass the upgraded version of the NAFTA deal, and Trump did. At some point, I believe the same conversation will be had, is being had with Trump on China. And there are people in China going to the Chinese leadership. Would you knock this off? This is hurting our exports. Um, people will, over time, decide to buy stuff from Vietnam and Malaysia and, and the Philippines and Japan, not China, um, if China keeps behaving the way it does. Um, I wish we were not using tariffs as a weapon. I do understand the argument that we're trying to get China to redirect how it trades with us. Yeah, all right, well, yeah, fingers crossed that the trade war is over pretty quickly. Uh, I want to talk to you about the Taxpayer Protection Pledge, which is such an awesome yeah. thing and something Australia desperately needs. Uh, so how did that come about? Well, first off, what is it, and how did it come about, and how many politicians have taken it up by now? Sure. Um, the Taxpayer Protection Pledge is a signed public statement that an elected official or a candidate for office says, I promise to the people of the United States, or to my state, that I will vote against any and all efforts to raise taxes. Uh, and then there are two witnesses, and it's dated, and it's signed. It's a contract. And it's not, as President Obama used to say, a contract with me personally, Grover Norquist, or Americans for Tax Reform. It is a contract with and an agreement to and a promise to the people of Arizona or the people of the United States. Uh, it is signed by more than 90% of all the Cong Republican congressmen and senators in the uh, U.S. House and Senate. Uh, many governors, many state legislators, almost all Republicans. In the past, there have been some Democrats who signed either because they were about to lose an election if they didn't, uh, or because they were one of the five Democrats who switched parties uh, and became Republicans, or one of the two Democratic senators who switched parties and became Republicans. The pledge takers switched or lost. Um, and 
it really is the dividing line between the two parties. There are some Democrats who won't steal your guns. There are some Democrats that are not pro-abortion. There are some Democrats who allow homeschooling or whatever. There are some Democrats who are free trade. There's no Democrat willing to promise not to raise your taxes. And there's almost no Republican who will raise taxes. Um, even the ones who haven't signed the pledge will tell you, oh, but I'm never going to raise taxes. I just I don't like to sign pledges or something. Um, at the end of the day, this is what has stopped uh, trillions of tax increases since 1986. It's been a major factor in American politics. It's what defeated George Herbert Walker Bush because he took the pledge and broke it. It's what <clears throat> defeated many people in primaries and in general elections because they wouldn't sign the pledge. They're running against somebody who did. Um, I recommend it to all nations, number of countries, Japan, uh, Chile, Argentina, all have pledges that, that people use in those races. It's particularly helpful in primary elections in the United States. Yeah, uh, I was going to say this a little bit later in the show, but you were saying how Obama thinks it's a personal uh, declaration to you who grew yeah. up in Norquist. Uh, and that's kind of how you got involved with like uh, the movie Vice. I think you got mentioned yes. by name on it. So yeah. what's it like being uh, seeing, like, did you ever see it? And what's it like seeing your own name being read out? I saw it two days ago when I flew here to Australia. It was on, it was on for free on the uh, airplane. Uh, it was interesting because the left, it was the left's caricature of the right. I mean, it's a caricature of Bush, it's a caricature of Cheney stuff. Um, and in it, they have our Wednesday, we have a Wednesday meeting, which is true, we do. Um, it's in a large room, 150 people, 30 people present for three minutes each at every meeting. So a lot of people in the room, um, people from the House, the Senate, outside groups, think tanks, conservative journalists, uh, writers, uh, taxpayer activists. A few of our staff members have spoken at it. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, so Australian, we've had a few people. Australian state legislators, uh, Australian uh, members of parliament when they come over. Uh, we've had Australians working at Americans for Tax Forum. Uh, Tim Anders was, was with us for a number of years. Uh, so uh, this is the goal is to get everybody in the Leave Us Alone Coalition telling everybody else what they're doing. I need to know what the gun people are doing. I need to know what the Southern Baptists are doing. I need to, I want to know what the people, the homeschool movement is doing, the legalized marijuana people. Everybody who's fighting for freedom, the vaping community, everybody who's fighting for freedom needs to be aware of, of their compatriots. Even they may not agree on every issue, but the guy who wants to go to church all day and, and be left alone, he has the same interest as a guy who wants to make money all day and be left alone. He has the same interest as a guy who wants to fondle his guns all day and be left alone. They want to be left alone. Okay? And each one looks at the other and says, that's not how I spend my time. It's not necessary that we agree what we do with our free time, and, but that we agree we should be left alone to do as we wish. And so freedom is not really divisible, and we need to make sure that everybody understands that your freedom to do what, whatever odd thing you want to do with your free time is up to you. Uh, and our job is to just make sure everybody's free to behave as they wish, as long as they don't punch anybody else. So um, this center-right meeting has really allowed the, the center-right to, it's the six, it, the people in that room represent 60% of the American electorate, everybody who voted for Reagan or would have if they were the right age. Uh, it is not the 150 most right-wing guys in town who all agree on everything. What's the point of that meeting? You want a meeting of people who are outward-facing, speaking to constituencies that are being brought into the freedom movement, not already in there for years and years. Uh, 
in 41 states, we have state versions of the meeting. A number of states have several meetings. California has three, Florida has three, Ohio has three meetings. And now 26 countries, including Australia, have uh, similar meetings. I know that they're looking to, to set up a second one in Australia. I'm going through New Zealand, which has just set up a meeting, um, or reestablished a meeting. I'll be going to that uh, in a few days. So it's wonderful to have not only across the United States, but throughout the world, meetings, and then we get together. We just had a meeting here with eight different Asian center-right leaders. Uh, we've had other meetings where we bring all the Europeans together, people from around the world. Uh, and people say, well, here's how our center-right, our Leave Us Alone coalition is working in Argentina or Canada or Poland, Britain, um, to see what works and, and how we can learn from each other. Yeah, uh, the staff members from the Institute of Public Affairs who have spoken at the meeting, they come back and they can't talk about anything else for at least a few months. I mean, it is a massive, massive deal to a lot of people. What's been your, like, what, what's been one of your favorite moments at one of these meetings? Um, well, we had um, uh, Ralph Nader come because he wanted to see it because he'd heard about, about the issue. Um, he wrote a book about how the left could triumph if they got all the billionaires on the left to work together. And what's kind of fun is I'm the bad guy in that movie. Uh, in that, it's not a movie, it's that in, in that book. It's, it's <laughs> a thousand pages long. I don't know if anybody's actually really read the thing. Um, Maybe only Ralph Nader. Yes, that's it. But um, to he left that and was quoted in the papers as saying it's like a marine barracks, it's cold, it's brutal, because people would pop up and talk for two minutes about how they were advancing liberty. And if you hear 30 people talk like that, and then Ralph wanted to talk to us about fighting corporate welfare, which we agree on, and term limits, which we agree on. So there's some issues that Ralph Nader and I have worked together on over the years. Um, transparency, every dollar the government spends should be up online so you can see it on, on a computer. Um, that's largely accomplished in the United States, uh, even at the local level. So um, those have been helpful. We had um, Al Gore come. He heard that Ralph Nader had been there, and he wanted to come. He was quite convinced if he smoke, spoke slowly and loudly enough, we'd understand the case for socializing the economy because of global warming. Yeah, it worked for inconvenient truth. Climate change. Yeah. It was just before his movie came out that oh, he really? came and talked. Yeah, he showed us some, some clips of it. And, and then he talked and took questions, and people got to ask their killer question of, Mr. Global Warming, and they discovered that they didn't have killer questions. They had questions that were important, but, but he had learned how to you know, uh, turn them aside. Um, so people had fantasies, if I could only ask this one question, that I would collapse the global warming guy. Um, but I asked uh, our friend, Vice President Gore, I said, look, um, if the angels came down and sat on your shoulder and said, it's not cooling, it's not warming, it's not changing, or man isn't doing it, um, you told us that global cooling was solved by doing 10 things like riding bicycles and using less energy and having taxes, and then global warming was solved by riding bicycles and using less energy and having taxes, and now global climate change is solved by the same 10 things you're supposed to do, and uh, ride bicycles and walk and be vegan or something. Um, if angels came down and stood on your shoulder and said, it's not warming, it's not cooling, and man didn't do it. Are there any of those 10 things you shouldn't do anyway? Um, and before I had finished the question, he said, no, you should do them all anyway. 
meaning he had a list of 10 things he wanted to impose on the American people, and the reason for them kept changing. And to have that happen in front of 150 people was pretty cool. Uh, I mean, right in front of us, I want you to do these 10 things. We have changed the reason from time to time. You have to do them, and we'll tell you why later. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, yeah, so with the Wednesday meeting, you've got this coalition of like-minded thinkers. You know, you've got libertarians, you've got conservatives, the Leave Them Alone coalition, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we've never really had anything like that in Australia. Like, the only thing that really combines classical liberals, libertarians, and conservatives is the Liberal Party. And, you know, when the Liberal Party gets taken over by a politician that doesn't exactly espouse liberal values, which we've had for the last couple of years, I mean, the movement kind of falls apart. Uh, but your, the Leave Them Alone coalition is quite separate to the Republican Party. I mean, like, you know, ideological fellows and members of both, but, you know, the Republican Party falls. There's a Leave Them Alone coalition that can step in there and fight for coalition values. So, like, how, how did you foster such a movement? Well, I realized that the old theory of how the modern Republican Party or the American conservative movement was structured was wrong. Um, people said there are three legs to the conservative stool. Uh, economic conservatism, free markets, social conservatism, and strong foreign policy. Well, there is a definition of what economic liberty means and, and economic conservatism means. It means free markets. Social conservatism, what? Does it, does, does it mean one particular religion? Does the government impose it, or is this something you should do? Uh, and foreign policy, what does that mean? Lots of wars or few wars? You know, are we, should we not engage with Europe like the Founding Fathers said? Uh, or should we be like, you know, neocons and blow up everything that annoys us? That, so it didn't make any sense. It didn't really hold together. Now, with the nature of the Soviet Union made it clear that you were at daggers drawn for quite some time. That masked the fact that there wasn't a unified view of what foreign policy should be absent a country trying to kill you every day. Um, when that went away, now it's our foreign policy. And there wasn't an agreement. Better, I said, is to look at it as a collection of groups that on their vote-moving issue, they want to be left alone. Homeschoolers, let, let me educate my kids at home. Private school, let me go outside the public school system. Gun owners, leave my Second Amendment rights alone. Small businessmen, don't regulate my profession, my, my small business, independent contractors, non-union workers who don't want to be forced to pay union dues. All the religious liberty people, this is why evangelical Protestants, conservative Catholics, Orthodox Jews, Muslims and Mormons, who disagree on who gets to heaven and why and how, uh, and in other countries they kill each other, all want to be left alone. There isn't one of them who thinks, I bet we could make everybody be a Baptist, you know, because <laughs> just nobody has a monopoly like that or, or, or could, could do that. So second choice, first choice might be everybody has to be my religion. Second choice is nobody tells anybody what to do. And that's the happy place we are in the United States with religious liberty. So if you ask the evangelicals, questions like, do you think people in San Francisco act oddly on Saturdays and do you wish they wouldn't? Yes. Do you vote on that? No. What, what bothers you? I want to be left alone. I want to raise my kids. I want to transmit my faith to my kids. I don't want the government messing with me. So a lot of the social conservative issues are freedom issues. If you just look at them right and go, what's the government doing to mess with people who care about traditional values? Okay. It's not that the government has to impose traditional values. They just want the government not to upend their ability to raise their own kids and, um, and, 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 and raise them as they'd like to. So that's why, you know, somebody who wants to make money all day, somebody who wants to have a Second Amendment rights, and somebody who wants to go to church all day, they're not in conflict. They're allies. They're friends. They want liberty to do what they want to do. If you understand that, then the Leave Us Alone Coalition is coherent. It's not in conflict. Just because people want to do different things with freedom does not mean they're going to fight at all. 
not in a political sense. I mean, they might want to argue all day about what, what you should do to go to heaven, but, but that's a personal issue, not a political issue where the government has any role. And so that understanding means you're constantly looking for new groups, vapors, homeschoolers, a million people who drive as independent contractors for Uber and Lyft and things like that. They didn't exist 15 years ago. Uh, homeschoolers was illegal 40 years ago and off in 48 states. They were illegal. You go to jail for homeschooling, educating kids at home. Now it's legal in all 50 states. So um, you find new issues that matter to people and bring them in. And then the Republican Party, which is also at the meeting, because they're a part of the broader Leave Us Alone coalition, not the whole thing, but they're a part of it. And people can move in on a particular issue and then decide if they want to get involved in campaigns or electing people or running for office themselves. Then the vehicle for political action is the party, not, not the coalition necessarily. And you get funneled through the coalition into a party and that understands, I have to leave everybody alone. And if I have a new idea, you check. Does that step on anybody's toes in the Leave Us Alone Coalition? And I know whenever somebody brings me some interesting idea, I do a little, I look around the room, I say, does this step on anybody's toes? Am I missing how this messes with somebody or doesn't? And if it doesn't mess with everybody, anyone, then it's a welcome addition to the, to the movement. And you want to bring them in and work with them. All right, brilliant. Okay, so the last thing I need to ask you is about Burning Man. Yes. So we were talking about the Burning Man on this show a few weeks ago when they got hit with all the state regulations from Nevada. Yes. And we were talking about Burning Man, and I said it's the last place in the world you'll ever find me, but I know you've been an attendee at least once, so what is it about Burning Man that attracts you? Yeah, I've been going every year since 2013. Um, the founder of it was a friend, and we, got, or we became friends, and he invited my wife and I out. And for the first two years, I couldn't go because it was the same week as school started for the kids. And then one year, it was the same week as the Republican Party convention. And I tweeted, That's a tough choice. I <laughs> tweeted, who is the idiot who put the Republican convention the same week as yeah. Burning Man? You could have it at Burning Man, and that would really get the uh, Leave Them Alone Coalition together. This would be good, yes. Um, but I've, been, I've gone every year since and intend to go for the rest of my life. Um, it is a wonderful, small, L libertarian collection of people who come together and create an entire city for seven days and then disassemble it and there's nothing but the desert again. And it is voluntary exchange. It is people working together. There was a voluntary 800 person sort of police force of people who just make sure everything's cool and nobody's bothering anybody else. And, um, and so it is and, and it's an explosion of art and self-expression. Some people dress interestingly. Yeah. Some people build. They undress interestingly. Yeah. yeah. It's about one out of 100 people is not yeah. wearing all their clothes. That's, 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 if you think, I saw a lot of naked people, you weren't paying attention to the rest of what's going on. Um, although I did walk down that sort of main thoroughfare, and there was a guy uh, roller skating on, on a setup that they built, one of those roller skating big U's. And... Uh, <laughs> I said, oh, my goodness, that guy's not wearing knee pads. That's not safe. And my wife said, he's not wearing anything. <laughs> my dad was a safety engineer. I noticed no knee pads. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, so some Had he been wearing knee pads? No, there's no problem. <laughs> yes, that's it. <laughs> I don't see any problem at all. Um, so the good news is it is just delightful. It is a wonderful um, um, place to be and um, – it runs 24-7. Uh, it's lit up like Las Vegas at night with all self-generated efforts. People put a lot of work into it. People think, oh, it's like Woodstock. No, it's not. Woodstock was a bunch of hippies who forgot to bring gas money 
gas, water, food, <laughs> had to be bailed out by the National Guard. <laughs> These are people who bring all of their stuff with them, who, and people do you know, trade back and forth stuff if they've forgotten things. Um, and it is a real voluntary community that comes together because it wants to. And people just do very interesting things. I've, I've done stand-up comedy out there. I've um, uh, lectured. I lecture every year, I think, to the Psychedelic Drug Association people. Um, and it's just, it's just wonderful to sit down and chat with people, um, share your... I, I always talk about the politics of liberty and how you expand liberty. Uh, it's great fun. All right, this is the closest I've ever been to saying I'll go. <laughs> I'm, I'm like 60% of the way there now, just off that. All right, Grover Norquist, Americans for Tax Reform. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, we're now joined by Daily Telegraph columnist Miranda Devine. Now, Miranda, you have written an incredibly in-depth, really candid feature about the final days of the Morrison campaign with Sherry Markson for the Daily Telegraph. I encourage everyone to go out and listen to it before this interview because, you know, there's going to be a lot of assumed knowledge because it's such a great article, you should read it anyway. So first off, how did this come about? Well, our editor wanted us to write a, sort of an in-depth how the war was won uh, feature for the Daily Telegraph straight after the election campaign. And so this was in just in the first few days after the win uh, that seemed to surprise most people except Scott Morrison. And uh, so we got enormous access to all the people who were involved in that campaign. They were still in, you know, that thrill of the moment, um, still basking in that victory. So they were quite candid with us. And, you know, nobody was boastful. There was no hubris. But it was just uh, a really interesting exercise in going right back to the very beginning of when Morrison became Prime Minister and how focused and determined he was and uh, and how, you know, he had this belief that some people said was delusional, that A, he would become Prime Minister as the sort of, you know, the accidental candidate uh, in that in that leadership coup. Um, and then secondly, that he would win the election, that he wasn't just there to save the furniture. He had that self-belief. And you saw on Saturday night, May 18, he stood up there at midnight in front of the cheering crowd and said, I've always believed in miracles. Yeah, I would love to get into Scott Morrison's belief in that. But I found it interesting you said at the start how the Daily Telegraph wanted you to write the how we won piece when no one was thinking like how they won. I imagine there'd be a fair few journalists that were trying to saddle up to the Labor camp in the last few days as well. So did you did you yourself think that liberals would have it? Well, we were asked to do that after the win. So, oh, after the yeah, win. Yeah, oh, after okay, the win. Right. But but you're right. Yeah, look, I, I travelled on both the Morrison and the Shorten buses and uh, you sort of got that inkling from the ground that Bill Shorten was not being well received, especially in the sort of places that he was um, making out were his heartland. You know, there was a Fremantle, there was a shipbuilding yard where there were a whole lot of quite... Um, grumpy, sullen uh, workers in high-vis vests and, and hard hats who were all assembled out to to listen to the great man and yet they were not at all interested in what he had to say and some of them told me afterwards they weren't going to vote for him. He was just another union organiser come in to, to sort of G up the blokes is what they said and he never delivered anything as never done a day's work in his life. Whereas... The feeling that you got from Scott Morrison, whether it was in Perth or in uh, Tasmania, where he went about seven times during the campaign to try and win Bass and Braddon, which he did, those Labor seats, uh, or in, in New South Wales or uh, in Queensland, the, the the mood on the ground was really positive towards him and also his wife, Jenny Morrison, who was 
just a reluctant campaigner to start with, but she really got into it and her kind of warmth and natural uh, attitude was really well received by people, everyone they met. Yeah, so because it took me till about eight thirty on election night before I started to think the Liberals would have it. So you were you, you thought from talking to people, you thought things were looking pretty good for them. Yes, and also um, I'd been talking to their their basically their strategists during the campaign who were talking through um, the marginal street the, uh, the marginal seat polling that they'd been getting from day one. Um, they were they were pretty confident that there was what they called a path to victory. I mean, it all had to go right. There was no guarantee. No one was thinking it was in the bag. But it certainly wasn't the lay-down misere for Bill Shorten that news poll and most commentators were saying. They were quietly confident it was just whether or not they were going to get enough seats to form government in their own right or if they were going to have to... As The night before the election, Scott Morrison was confident that he would form government, but at that point he was saying, well, it might have to be with the help of two crossbenchers. Surprisingly, Andrew Wilkie was one of them, but he and Scott Morrison have, have an unusual friendship. They really quite like yeah, each other. Yeah, that was a weird one out there where it's just like, oh, it's Bob Catter and Andrew Wilkie, which would be the buddy cop movie to save all buddy cop <laughs> movies. But anyway, um, yeah, that's another thing I wanted to talk to you about was every poll was saying Labor was winning and then after the election it's like, well, how do we do polling? But the Texter stuff was consistently showing the Liberals win with a chance. Like, what were Texter doing differently that they were able to produce it right but none of the other giants were able to well i don't really know i mean he talks a lot about you know the quants and the numbers and they've been doing it for a long time um they they were just out in those marginal seats and then they would send the data overnight to london where it would get crunched by their quants and then it would come back in the morning and they had um you know they were consistently correct for um you know, for instance, they had uh, after the budget, the back in black budget, their primary vote bounced to over 40, which of course is the threshold for winning. And then um, from about January, they uh, they were this was Josh Frydenberg had spent the whole of his Christmas break writing these pungent uh, economic articles, and Scott Morrison had been going around the country just being normal everyday dad, having a holiday with his kids, writing articles in um, in the daily. Telegraph that were read by the so-called quiet Australians. Um, he was just quietly getting on with business and uh, slowly building his brand. Mm. And so by the end of January, their their primary vote was up to 42, 43, and it didn't really leave that winning uh, threshold for the rest of the campaign. So meanwhile, you had News Poll, for instance, which is uh, now run by Galaxy, uh, which was also surprisingly doing the Labor Party polling, and there's some talk that, you know, that was a real conflict of interest. But, you know, if you notice the published News Polls have got enormous margins of error, 2.5%. They have small sample sizes. Um, you know, really, a, a, a movement of one or two points is meaningless and yet the, the media, all of us, have gotten into this habit, which I hope now is broken, of treating every tiny little point and half point move as if it's some momentous indication of public sentiment when it's just within the margin of error. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to go back to the articles that Scott Morrison was writing, you mentioned one which was just talking about how he spent his holiday just going down and surfing. And you put that forward as like, uh, this is the kind of thing that made Scott Morrison really stand out. So why did that article really stand out to... Uh, sorry, why, why did that article really uh, connect with voters, do you reckon? Well, 
Look, it was part of his whole every man um, pitch to Australians to say that I'm just like you, I'm a family man with a mortgage. Uh, and that really worked. He, this was an article where he went to Shoalhaven Heads with his family. Um, he tweeted pictures of himself, put on Facebook of, you know, they had the trailer in the back with all the paraphernalia, beach paraphernalia that families have. He talked about having fish and chips, um, you know, for dinner like anyone else. So th- it was just part of him pitching himself as not the top end of town as uh, Bill Shorten had been and Labor was going to pitch. Uh, they still had the same pitch that they had against um, Malcolm Turnbull, who was not an everyman. And so the top end of town rhetoric, which worked against Malcolm Turnbull, just fell flat with Scott Morrison. And he was at pains to show that he was just an everyday guy and that he understood people's um, concerns, that it was about aspiration and uh, it was about not being told what to do by government. And, you know, he just focused on the economy, being a competent economic manager because they knew from Texter's polling that that was the number one what's called equity or, or positive in their brand. Um, their, their number one negative in their brand was, of course, chaos and dysfunction, disunity from all the years of fighting in fighting. And, um, you know, that was what Labor kept on hammering every single day. And I think there was a day that I didn't hear Bill Short and talk about chaos and disunity. But what Scott Morrison did very early on was very clever. He decided to neutralise that negative by going into the party room and it was very difficult for him to extract this, but he managed to change the rules so that no uh, leader can be dispatched, no prime minister can be dispatched by the party other than through an election. So that kind of neutralised that attack and that's what he did. He was very clever, very on message. Anytime he's out in the field during the campaign and that issue was raised, which it often was, he would just say, we've changed the rules and then he would pivot immediately to this is a choice between me and Scott and uh, Bill Shorten. Uh, we are going to have each one of us for three years because both our parties have learned the lesson and we've both changed the rules. You're stuck with us for three years. And that was the other part of his pitch. Do you want me or Bill Shorten? Because the big positive that they had was that uh, Scott Morrison's personal brand consistently was way above Bill Shorten's. Bill Shorten was well known after six years as opposition leader and disliked by the public, not trusted. Um, so that was a big plus. So all all Scott Morrison did, it seems easy now, but he just stayed on message. It was taxes, 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 Labor's going to tax you to death and bill, bill, bill. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so one thing I definitely got out of your profile was that Scott Morrison is a man that enjoys a game of pool. There's a great photo of him <laughs> playing pool. There's reference to a debate had at 10.30 on election eve whether to go back to a pub and play some more pool. Now, I know you weren't with him for that, but you were on the campaign trail. Did you see his pool game? How seriously does this man take his pool? Look, he is the most amazing sports guy, but he's not that good at pool. That's about the only thing that he didn't really excel at. But... You know, you saw him um, there in Karangamite at Torquay uh, doing lawn bowls and he just scored, he just did the first bowl, he scored something that's called Kissing the Kitty, which I'm told is like a hole-in-one in lawn bowls. Uh, every every time he picked up a ball or kicked a ball or played cricket or any type of sporting event, he seemed to manage to do extremely well. And I asked his wife about that. Even, um, for instance, when he had to toss a coin in those three debates, he always won. Oh, that's how... 
he was a very lucky. And mm. I said to his wife, and she just said to him, she she like totally in love with him still having met him when she was 12 but um she says uh look he's always good at everything he's always won everything he's done i can't beat him in any contest um and he's very competitive right okay uh the other one i want to ask you so uh you go out of your way uh you and shari in this article go out of your way to describe yaron finkelstein as bespectacled and john kunkel as bald like (laughs) they just references these things what do those guys do to you (laughs) no 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 it's just to try and uh you know we're we're trying to write six thousand words in a very short period of time yeah trying to enhance it with a little bit of colour. So that's so just a cheap about John adju- adjective. <laughs> what do we know about John Kunkel? Bored. All right, let's go with that. Well, it is the most obvious feature that he has when you bump into him. Fantastic. All right, uh, let's move over to Labor. So you had an op-ed in the Daily Telegraph last week uh, saying how Labor lost because it went woke. And uh, you single out Emily's List. Now, what is Emily's List and why is it emblematic of Labor's mistakes? Well, look, Emily's List is something that um, the Labor women sign up to and uh, then they get money and uh, like most of them are signed up to it, I think three quarters of them. And if you sign up to Emily's List, that's really the only way to get ahead in the Labor Party. And you sign up to it, you sign up to abortion on demand. So it's saying, you know, they're all very proud of themselves that they now have 50% females representation in the parliamentary party but it's only a certain type of female you know it's a woman that subscribes to their extreme feminist rhetoric and uh you know i don't think that that shows diversity at all mm. and uh, in one uh for example in the apl national plat- alp national platform you mentioned there's uh 64 mentions of sexual orientation 59 of intersex 42 of lgbti 36 of transgender and so on and so forth but only 10 uh mentions of housing affordability which i found to be a very interesting stat. So that really shows Labor's moving to areas that it didn't talk about like 20 years ago and moving away from areas that it did talk about. Well, this is the, the tragedy for Labor is that they really um, have moved so far left or if you know identity politics down that line that they're now not reflecting the hopes and aspirations of most of their voters. Uh, they th- this you know that that national platform which. Bill Shorten, who's kind of the last of the old school right wing um, leaders, um, he completely capitulated to this agenda and uh, he pretended during the campaign and before it that really Labor wasn't um, bound by any of this ridiculous stuff that was in their national platform, but they are. It is binding on a future national government, as anyone knows, um, for the Labor Party. And so uh, it, it, it was. it's obsessed by sexual politics, by identity politics, and um, that's just a path to division and disunity and disaster in, in terms of their electoral map. You know, you saw um, in many places in Australia during the election, um, you saw the faith vote moving against Labor. You know, in their heartland, uh, for instance, in southwestern Sydney, uh, you had, I mean, they're very safe seats. Tony Burke and Chris Bowen. Chris Bowen's talked about this. Um, and, uh, you know, they 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 had suffered in some of their booths 25 30% swings against them. And these are booths where people were disgruntled about the same-sex marriage vote, but even more disgruntled about the fact that since then it seems that their religious freedoms have been eroded and all they got from Bill Shorten was, oh, well, you're a knuckle-dragger, cave-dweller, you're a hater that crawled out from under a rock. You know, insulting half the electorate um, 
40% of people of Australians voted against same-sex marriage. Insulting half the electorate is not a recipe for electoral success, as we saw from Hillary Clinton and now from Bill Shorten. Uh, I'm actually going to have to disagree with you because uh, I thought it was quite clear that corporate leviathans and a financial behemoth was the reason <laughs> that Labor lost, so not any of these other reasons. Yeah, that's right. He's found a new reason. Yeah, he, he decided not to listen to Chris Bowen. But uh, look, there were a number of reasons that they lost and the faith vote was part of it, but really it just showed how out of touch they were, that Labor has lost sight of what its core values were, what uh, the party was founded on by, you know, during a Shearer's strike in outback Queensland, uh, that, you know, homelessness and, um, you know, wages and all the things that they used to care about, um, what you thought of as Labor core values, seem to have been jettisoned in favour of this very fringe agenda, rainbow agenda, whatever you call it, which... um, you know, it doesn't solve any problems. Yeah, this uh, talk on religious freedom uh, leads me to the last thing I want to talk to you about. So this, the Israel Folau issue. Mm. So people listening to the show would have heard me and Pete talk about it in the past. And if you don't, uh, yeah. So well, what, what's your take on it all? Like, is this a free speech issue or is it a breach of contract issue? Well, I mean, it's a freedom of religion issue. This is a man who uh, is a devout fundamentalist Christian and he has quoted the Bible on his Instagram and he has lost his job for it. And that sends a chill through all Christians. I mean, especially in rugby where the majority of uh, their players are um, you know, Pacific Islanders and the, most of those are devout fundamentalist Christians like Israel Folau. And, uh, you know, I... I, I I can't understand how badly Rugby Australia handled this. Uh, we, we now know that Raylene Castle uh, told the sponsors, like Qantas, that he that Falau was going to be sacked before Falau knew. Um, we now know that she sent a draft copy of the email that she was putting out to say that she was going to sack Falau. She sent a draft copy to Qantas for their approval before she sent it. So this is Rugby Australia absolutely kowtowing to, um, you know, a few corporate virtue-signalling woke merchants uh, who have no right to do that to the game. I mean, it's really terribly destructive to the game and to Israel Folau himself. Uh, you know, a very scary thing to do. This was a, a – the Israel Folau matter was the sort of drumbeat in the background of the election campaign. It didn't come up so much. I mean, it did in one debate and – then the dying days of the campaign, I think in desperation, Bill Shorten tried to bring it up to uh, sort of trip up, use it as a wedge issue against Scott Morrison, who's a devout Pentecostal Christian, uh, saying to him, you know, you haven't said whether you think that homosexual people will go to hell. And, of course, Scott Morrison said, well, I don't think that. Um, but, you know, outrageous that it should be dragged into the campaign as if somehow uh, Christians who believe in the Bible are automatically bigots and homophobes. Yeah, if you start bringing that up in the final days of a campaign, your campaign is not doing too well. No. <laughs> I, I think we're getting away from the main issues. Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, but blame De- those corporate leviathans. No, please. The, yeah. uh, and the financial behemoth. Don't That's let right. the financial behemoth <laughs> no. get away with it. All right, uh, Miranda Devine, go out and... Uh, sorry, to all listeners, go out and read Miranda Devine and Sherry Markson's feature on the last days of the Morrison campaign. It is absolutely awesome. So, Miranda, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much. All right. Okay, thank you to Grover Norquist and Miranda Devine for those interviews. All right, uh, make sure you're going out and reading Miranda Devine's article. Awesome stuff. Now, let's fly through some stories that made us laugh this week, Pete. And well, this one it doesn't so much make us laugh as mourn the fall of Western civilization as we know it. So tell us what happened. 
Well, you are right. I think you might have even undersold it, actually. It's much more important than that. But um, a Richmond Cheer Squad member. Now, Richmond's a footy club here in Melbourne. The, the James, best footy club. James actually happens to follow. Yeah. This isn't me. The man involved here is not me. Well, actually, one of the questions I've got here is, is this you, James? But <laughs> let's, let the, let's let the people decide. Yeah. Um, so a man from the Richmond Cheer Squad was uh, banned from sitting with the Cheer Squad for three weeks because he shouted at the umpire, be consistent, you green maggot. So we're done. Little we're done. Worms this is it that we're talking about uh, now. After the after the incident, the cheer squad also said it uh, had a cultural awareness session, which, to be honest, wouldn't go astray with the Richmond fans. Um, <laughs> I would love to be in that. Uh, like in my head, they're still all wearing their Richmond gear, and yeah. f- a few of them have the flags, and they're just all sitting in the conference room yeah. talking about their feelings. Yeah, would like, be fantastic. Pretty hammered and. <laughs> Anyway, so they did that. They released a statement saying, the football field is the umpire's place of work and it is seen that any abuse directed towards them or any on-field official uh, is deemed as workplace bullying. <laughs> as if a Richmond Can you bully about- someone? It, it, it's not workplace bullying if you bully someone that just happens to be at their workplace, right? Like if I just ran in and gave the people in the building next to us a noogie, is that workplace bullying or what? is that just me being a jerk? I, I don't know what a noogie is, but yeah, I mean, look, I'm not... Know, the, do you know, like, you don't know Age of Empires, you don't know noogies, did you even grow up? Like, noogies well, is that thing. That, yeah, okay, so James is sort of rubbing his head. I know what that is, but I didn't know that it was called that. Anyway, oh, look, I don't know about your question about workplace bullying. I'm yeah. actually, believe it or not, not an industrial relations lawyer, but... um. Uh, so anyway, it was workplace bullying will not be tolerated, which, as I said, is pretty good words, pretty big words for a Richmond supporter. Um, and um, Yeah, I'm just letting that slide. It's Sorry, I've got one more thing here, and it's memo to fans. The Richmond cheer squad said members should refrain from making any derogatory comments towards anyone, be it on field or off. Just never say anything bad ever again. So that means, as I've got in my takes here, so my question was, was this James? Still not. James has already denied it, but the fact he denied it so quickly is pretty suspicious. Um, Look, I don't think, I think the big thing that the AFL's offended about is that they've said umpires should be consistent. But that's the thing they're really upset about. Yeah, I've got one. So basically this guy would have got in a fair bit of trouble immediately after he yelled it. Mm. And I think that's what kicked all this off when Mm. he yelled, you know, be consistent, you green maggot. What he should have just said was I was actually directing that at Donald Trump and then basically would have just been given a blue check mark and uh, probably box corporate box seat with the AFL. Well, he would have been brave. Yeah. And yeah, a round of applause for him. And no one would have been able to say anything bad about him because that's now banned. Exactly right. And I don't, I think that's, so you literally can't bag the umpires. You can't do it anymore. Not even in a sort of by, by you know comparing them to a lovable um, insect. Uh, maggots, like I know at the point you're making, but maggots, few, maggots aren't lovable. I've met a few nice maggots. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. All right, uh, civilization is over. Mm. All right, uh, but now it is now June in 2019, and this makes it Pride Month. And Pride Month uh, is a time, you know, it's a very special time for a certain part of our community. It's a time where they can really feel accepted. And uh, the part of the community that I'm talking about is corporate brands. Uh, Because no one loves Pride Month more than corporate brands with a Twitter account. And every, you know, like EB Games has changed. Like, basically, if you've been on social media in the last couple of days, you've seen at least one brand change their profile picture to the rainbow flag to Mm -hmm. show that uh, they also see gay people as a marketable demographic. (laughs) Uh, Now, uh, Budweiser took it one step forward than most. So... What are they? So they're selling cups here. Is that the idea? Oh, I thought it was like, cans that are, cans. Like they're beer in a can, but beer in a can, but, and they they're doing different colours to show different parts of people's uh, you know uh, sexual preferences, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't gone down too well on Twitter. Okay. Uh, and there's one, been one in particular. Uh, so it's a black, grey, white can, 
and purple on the bottom. And they say black is for asexuals who don't feel sexual attraction to anyone. Mm-hmm. Gray is for gray asexuals who sometimes feel sexual attraction. That's everyone in the Demisexuals world. who only feel it if they know someone well. White nods do non-asexual allies and purple represents the whole community. My favourite's the white one. Yep, uh, non-asexual allies. That's like, these people are really horny, but they care about asexuals. <laughs> it's like... You know, they're like, no, 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 I get horny all the time. But, I, you know, so that was my favourite. No, well, you you got my one, which is like, uh, who sometimes feel sexual attraction is, you know, like, that's everyone. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you feel sexual attraction, sometimes you don't. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, my overall point being, <laughs> brands just become in an incredible competition to see who could be the most work on social media. And, uh, like... Budweiser this year. Budweiser gets to wear the trophy is the one that went a bit too hard. Well, they should. I've actually got another good one here, James, which is very similar to the first one. Magenta is for same-sex attraction. Blue is for gender to attract to... Sorry, blue is for attraction to genders other than your own. And lavender, a mix of the two, represents attraction to your own and other genders, though some interpret it differently. Though some interpret it differently. Yeah. Sorry, we're just, we're just doing this. Every combo in the world, but in case we've missed any, some interpret it differently. Yeah. So, <laughs> because you just know there was going to be someone with a Twitter account that just goes, well, I can well actually this one and just go, hmm, your definition there. Yeah. It's not up to code. They could just put that in. For yeah. For, uh, just say this, this beer is for every single demographic in the world equally. There you go. Yeah. Look, to be honest, if they just bunged a few rainbow flags on a few cans of beers, yeah. I would say, you know, good on them because gay people do to get discrimination in a lot of communities around the world, but this is, feels to me that it's, they've overcomplicated the matter. All right. Uh, now, let us talk another thing that's happening right now, which is uh, Donald Trump has touched down oh, in London. Sorry, I'll skip forward. Yeah, no, Donald Trump has... The Don has landed, as they say. They don't say it, but he has. <laughs> Peter's um, been saying it. Yeah. So he's gone to London. He's been waiting for a state visit to the UK for his whole presidency, right? Yeah, like <laughs> an official visit, you know, get to meet the Queen, all that stuff. Blah, right. Blah, blah. I don't know if he's been waiting for it. It's not like I'm not dealing with any of these other things until this comes through. He's been looking That's the ultimate sign of validation. Yeah, yeah. Until I meet the Queen, this has all been for naught. That's all right. That's right. So he's obviously, so Sadiq Khan, the Lord Mayor of London, has come out and written this big piece in The Guardian about how, you know, we shouldn't speak to Donald Trump as as Britain. And even though it's an important relationship, Donald Trump's a fascist. Donald Trump. Donald Trump's a fascist. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. He's got a few quotes in there, which is pretty funny. Obviously, everyone went to town on the fact that Sadiq has missed out on a few crucial state visits to the UK where he's remained silent, such as Xi Jinping, who's done a few dodgy things, as you know, in, being in charge of China, the, the Saudi prince. Uh, and also, he, uh, he, he defended Louis Farrakhan, uh, the anti-Semitic uh, American coming to Britain. So that was, you know, it's all coming out now, Sadiq. Yeah. So that didn't go well for him. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you saw Donald Trump's response to what Sadiq Khan was saying. I was just getting into that. Okay, cool. Take us away. Okay, so Trump, just as he was landing uh, at Stan, said, refer to Sadiq Khan as a stone-cold loser. (laughs) I don't know what he means by that. That's sort of leaving... He's mincing his words It probably means loser. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, And he goes on in a... I don't think it's a compliment. It's not a compliment. He goes on in a subsequent uh, tweet to say, Khan reminds me very much of our dumb and incompetent mayor of NYC, de Blasio who has also done a terrible job. Yeah, so, which is such an all-time sideways snipe. Like, yeah. de Blasio's just going about his day. He's suddenly, well, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, for once, Trump's saying what he thinks on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so, look, that's what's happened. There's meant to be a protest with a quarter of a million people in London coming up. Interesting you should mention the protest, Pete, because yeah. the protest has also heralded the return of possibly the world's most overrated thing, which is the Trump baby. Oh, yeah, the Trump baby. Uh, that Trump baby, people make it out to be the biggest balloon in the history of the planet. Yeah. It is like two people wide. Is it? Yeah. If you see it on the ground, 
it is a very, very small thing. Yeah. So every article that gets written about the Trump baby, like I saw like uh, the Museum of London wants to put in their political section, (sighs) like the Trump baby. You have no idea how crappy this Uh, thing is. If it was like it could engulf a street and, you know, one finely thrown paperclip could envelop a suburb of London in this like deflated baby, Mm. then we can talk about museumizing it. Until then... That's the present tense of being put in a museum. Okay. <laughs> until then, I'm not spending any time on it yeah. while people are getting torn to pieces in yeah. far north Queensland. Yeah. Nah, look, it's just up there. It's up there with the witty banners, like massively overrated. Yes. Um, what else did I have here? Oh, look, I, I liked it. Sadiq Khan, you can't, he tackles the big issues. You know, it was his government that said that cycling in London was too white, male, and middle class. Yeah. So this guy speaks truth to people. Yeah, he does. Has he done anything about the surgeon knife crime? Oh, look, I don't know, but that's... Have done anything about London overtaking New York as the murder capital? That's that's not important, James. What's important is that... They you know, s- Trump babies and cyclists. There's too many fat old white blokes <laughs> riding bikes around London. Anyway. All right, cool. Uh, we'll last story we got here. So the Indian elections just came through. So we talked about that briefly in Hey, What Did I Miss last week? Make sure you subscribe to that. Uh, one story that's come out, Pete, mm. which uh, was a little sad. It did go viral. It was a little sad. Go An independent candidate from the Indian state of Punjab managed to make himself known around the world after a video of him crying and telling a reporter that he only received five votes in the recent Indian general elections despite having nine family members. Ooh, that's, that's pretty brutal. That's, it's a tough one. Now, there is a happy ending, so we should point out this because we are about to make fun of this situation and we don't want to sound like jerks. Happy ending. The guy actually gets 856 votes, which I've been told through Google research is actually a fair amount to, for this. Like this, That guy has overshot expectations. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe people saw the clip and then voted for him just to be like, ah, come on, man, you got it. But anyway, gets 856 votes. Yeah. You know, we don't know, but likely that includes his nine family members. We can't rule that in or rule that out at this stage. So happy ending. Uh, but, Pete, this leads me to my first question. Okay. Could you guarantee that your entire family would vote for you? Um, oh, no, nah, probably not. My brother wouldn't vote for me because he's a troll. But, um, <laughs> Just as, and then he'd send you a photo of you yeah, yeah, not nah, voting for you. Didn't like your platform. But I think that I could get, you know, a few mates to vote for me. I could get more than five. Um, of course, we had Fraser Anning with 19 votes. Yeah. So, I mean, who's got only 19 mates? Yeah, That's exactly. the question. <laughs> like, if, literally, I, if I went for the election, I'd get more than 19 votes. I'd get 43. <laughs> I want the full list of people. Okay. <laughs> I'll end, get you that list. At the end of the show. Uh, cool. All right. Did you have anything on this? Because I had another follow-up question. So we should point out that Nitu Shuturan uh, Wala is illiterate. So he's a literate independent candidate and got 856 votes, which is a great effort. His family did come out and make a statement which says he has complete support from the family and everyone, including our uncles and the extended family, has voted him. Voted for him, said his brother. So they did vote for him. Yep. And the journo jumped the gun. That was going over the board by saying extended uncles. It's just like, you have no idea how much our family supports this guy. Yeah, like, yeah. That's, that's, there are uncles that have never met him yep. that would definitely vote for him based on how loving our family is. Doth protest too much, whatever that saying is. Uh, yep. Surely a couple of them would have said, I'm sick of Nito, I'm not voting for him, he's an idiot. Now, well, Pete, speaking of family voting for each other, I like okay. to think of us as a podcast family. Okay. Now, would you... Yep. Would you vote for me? Uh, it, well, it would depend mm. what your platform was, mm. all the rest of it. All right. Well, probably chilling. But I mean, a chilling indicator. Because I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Like you could go on and do anything in the future, and I'm on record saying I'd vote for you. You got to be careful in this day and age, James. All right. Well, uh, you know, this is a schism. <laughs> Pete and I. Are would you have vote to for d- me? See you guys next week. Yeah, I